Well, as Libby mentioned, today we conclude our sermon series looking at how we share our faith with the society around us. And uh, don't worry, towards the end I will be giving some reflection on the events of Thursday and Friday. But on Tuesday, some of us were at the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, sensibly, it was held in Edinburgh uh, this year, rather than us having to get up at five o'clock in the morning and drive to Falkirk, uh, which is an interesting trip in itself. Um, but the speaker, Patrick Dixon, was encouraging us to play our part in transforming the nation. And he used the results of the Barna surveys that were carried out last year, both in Scotland and in England. And he pointed out, using the statistics, that things perhaps aren't as bad as church leaders sometimes think, including me. If you listen to church leaders, we will often give you the impression that we're doomed. We're doomed. Uh, in that ama amazing phrase of Corporal Fraser from Dad's Army, that has just dated me and lost half the congregation <laughs> who were looking at me in askance. Why is he speaking in that strange Scottish accent when he's not a Scot? And who is Corporal Fraser? Um, well, the reality is that there are lots of encouragements when we look around at how churches and Christians are perceived by people who don't come to church and who don't share our faith. For example, 55% of Scots have a favourable impression of Christianity. 61% of Scots agree that Christianity has good values and principles. 69% of Scots think that church is a good thing. 60% of UK adults think that Jesus was a real person who existed. And when asked what words they associate with the person of Jesus, they came up with these top three. Spiritual, loving, and peaceful. That's what people who don't come to church, who don't share our faith, think about the person of Jesus. Spiritual, loving, and peaceful. 67% of the population admitted to knowing a practicing Christian. And 58% of those said that they had had a conversation with them about their faith in Jesus. Now, if I'm honest, that is a much higher statistic than most church leaders think. And that's part of the reason for the sermon series that we've had over the last two or three months, trying to think, how do we share our faith with people who weren't Christians? Just over a year ago, um, we decided to, to stop doing the Alpha course for a year. We knew that come this September, there's going to be an amazing opportunity with the relaunch of the Alpha course, with a, a global campaign with Bear Grylls. And we wanted to take advantage of that by stopping and thinking and re-evaluating how we were doing as a church with regards to evangelism. And one of the reasons that we stopped doing the Alpha course was to take a step back and to reevaluate. If I'm honest, I hoped that I would be deluged by emails and people on Sundays saying to me, why aren't we doing Alpha? The reality has been very different. It's as though no one's noticed that we're not doing Alpha, apart from the people who were on the Alpha team. They've got their Thursday evenings back and a weekend in November. 
But apart from that, there's been no sort of, oh, why aren't we doing Alpha? Now, it could be that people have thought that, but they haven't said it. But that's confirmed, really, where we thought we were, that maybe as a church we need to take more seriously the fact that each of us as Christians, we may not be evangelists, but we are all called to be witnesses. And the reality is that we live in a nation where only 5% of the population attend church on any regular basis. Accordingly, we are officially members of an unchurched and unreached people's group. When missionary societies look at the world, they will look at different nations and different societies and they will grade on whether that nation is an unreached people's group with the Christian faith. By that definition of only 5%, we are members of an unreached people's group. Rather than sending mission partners abroad, and it's already been happening for the last 20 or 30 years, the worldwide church is sending missionaries to the UK and to Scotland. And yet, for all that, the person of Jesus remains incredibly attractive to people. Loving, peaceful, and spiritual. That great theologian, Billy Connolly, once said, I can't believe in Christianity, but Jesus was a wonderful man. There's something deeply attractive, something deeply intriguing about the person of Jesus. And yet there's this paradox with the person of Jesus. Because as soon as he begins his public ministry, as soon as he starts to reveal who he is, some people are attracted to him, but some people are repelled from him. If you've got a Bible, turn back to that passage that Roderick read for us from Luke chapter 4. Jesus begins his public ministry and almost immediately he begins to disappoint people. In Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He's been out in the, in the wilderness, been tempted by the devil, and uh, he's, he's been led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He returns, we're told, in the power of the Spirit. Something has, has happened to Jesus as he's been in the wilderness, he's been tempted, as he's resisted the temptation, something significant has happened to the person of Jesus. Because he returns in the power of the Spirit. Not simply led by the Spirit, he returns in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Verse 15, he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He starts to get a reputation for being somebody that other people should listen to. He starts to teach in the synagogues around Capernaum, around Galilee, and people start to like what they hear. They start to like what they see. But then he goes home to Nazareth, verse 16. Nazareth, the place where he's grown up. Nazareth, the place where Joseph and Mary had brought him up, where he knew everybody and everybody knew him. And he goes, as was his custom, we're told, to the local synagogue. Jesus 
used to go to his local synagogue. Over the years, whenever I've read that verse, I've thought, well, I might think church is boring occasionally. Why? People aren't looking at me going, really? Church is boring? Not this one. No, Dave, keep on preaching for longer. That's what your faces are saying. But imagine being Jesus and going to synagogue. If you find church boring, imagine what it was like for the Son of God going every week to synagogue and hearing other people preach. Imagine what that was like. I imagine Jesus sort of walking out of the synagogue every Saturday going, you missed it again. (laughs) And being so tempted to stand up and say, no, I think you've got that bit wrong. I think what my father meant was this. Imagine what that was like. But Jesus was a good, faithful, obedient Jew, and he went to synagogue every week. Now, because of his reputation, when it comes to that part in the service where there is a reading, the scroll is handed to Jesus. A synagogue required ten men in order to be formed. Women didn't get a look in. If you had ten men, you could form a synagogue. And interestingly, well, I think it's interesting, once a synagogue got to a hundred people, you had to start a new one. You weren't allowed to have a synagogue with more than a hundred people in it. So even in a small village like Nazareth, there would have been quite a few synagogues, probably. The service in a synagogue was very predictable. There would be the reciting of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. You will love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Well, in fact, Jesus added the word mind. You will love the Lord your God with your soul, your strength, your heart, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. That would be recited at the beginning. Some liturgical prayers would be led by a rabbi. There would then be the reading of some scriptures from the Torah and prophets, followed by a sermon and a blessing. Now, Jesus seems to be known to everyone, verse 16, and he's handed the scroll of the prophets to read, and he stands and reads these words from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it is written. You see what Jesus is doing? He's handed a scroll. He deliberately finds the place where it is written. Isaiah 61 and verses 1 and 2. And he reads these amazing words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he rolls back the scroll and he hands it back to the attendant and then he sits down. Now if you read in a synagogue and then sat down, that signified something. In Jesus' time, in Jesus' culture, when you sat down, that meant that you had something to say. Our culture, you stand up when you have something to say. In Jesus' culture, you sat down to speak. It's much more civilized. It was your congregation who stood. You sat down. Imagine how long I could go for if I was sitting down. Now, what we have then is perhaps just the beginning of Jesus' sermon. 
Maybe he does go on to speak more words, but the first recorded words of Jesus in Luke's Gospel are quite deliberate. And with these words, everything is changed. Everything is changed for the people who are listening to Jesus. Everything is changed for Jesus, and everything is changed for us. Because Jesus hands the scroll back, sits down, and then says eight words in English. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the moment when Jesus publicly owns his identity, his purpose, and his destiny. Now, his hearers know him well. They've grown up with him. And initially, maybe they don't quite grasp what's happened. Maybe like some of us waking up on Friday morning, couldn't quite take in the news that we were hearing. It's a classic sort of reaction. It's actually fascinating to watch over the last 48 hours. All the normal grief reactions. Disbelief, anger, bargaining, they're all there. The people listening to Jesus can't quite take it in, what he said. As they perhaps listen to the rest of his talk, verse 22, all speak well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Literally, they were amazed at the grace coming out of Jesus' mouth. But then the penny begins to drop. Hang on. Isn't this Joseph's son, they say? What they're thinking is, we've seen this bloke grow up. This guy went to school with our kids. This guy came to my house for a sleepover. He's claiming something ridiculous. He's claiming something remarkable. He's claiming something that, if he's not careful, could lead him into trouble. Jesus knows what they're thinking, he always does, and then he continues his sermon. He throws back at them a proverb. I bet you're thinking, he's saying, physician, heal yourself. And then he deliberately gives them a scriptural example to fit in with his talk. But pointedly, the example that he gives them is of a particular time in Israel's history, which was the low point in the history of Israel. It's where God had been rejected by the people of God. Where God had been rejected by the people of Israel and God bypasses the people of Israel because of their idolatry and rebellion against him. And Elijah the prophet goes and prays for and heals Naaman the Syrian. Now why was this particularly shocking for the people who were listening to Jesus? Because they're furious. If you follow the rest of the chapter through, verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. This is quite an extreme reaction to a sermon. None of my sermons have ever produced this reaction, where people have wanted to take me to a cliff and throw me off. Don't even comment. Don't go there. But that's the reaction that the people have to Jesus. They're so enraged, they're so outraged by what he said, they take him to 
edge of a cliff to throw him off, Jesus somehow just simply turns around and walks through the crowd. Untouched, but not unaffected. So why did they react so badly? What had meek and mild Jesus, this person who's spiritual and loving and peaceful, said that was so outrageous that the people in his hometown couldn't cope with it? Well, you see, his hearers were waiting for one thing. They'd waited for hundreds of years for one thing, a Messiah. God's anointed chosen servant who would come and free Israel from their pagan enemies, the Romans. The Israelites had been occupied and then occupied and then occupied and occupied by pagan forces. The Romans were the latest of them and they believed that at one point, in one time, God would send a messenger. God would send a servant. God would send a Messiah who would come and rescue them and the pagans would be got rid of. But what Jesus does is deliberately tell of a time when God does act and the people who benefit are the pagans, not the people of Israel. It's as though Jesus is deliberately rubbing their noses in it. He's saying, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am, I am come. God has sent me. And to prove to you that God has sent me, I'm going to tell you a story about when God worked in the pagans, not through his chosen people. What was Jesus doing in claiming to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61? Several things. He was claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the servant of the Lord. Secondly, he claimed that his mission was a preaching one to the poor in every sense, morally and spiritually, economically and socially. He would have been completely bamboozled with Western theologians who have argued for the last 100 years and said, well, was Jesus talking about the spiritually poor or was Jesus talking about the economically poor? Jesus would have gone, well, both. It's not either or, it's both and. It's all-encompassing. Anybody who's poor, in any sense, I've come to set them free. Thirdly, he claimed to bring release, good news, freedom, recovery, physical and spiritual sight to the blind, freedom to those in slavery, justice for those oppressed. And he claimed to be able to declare this year of the Lord's favour, this jubilee year, which was laid down by God in Leviticus chapter 25, when every 25 or 50 years, everything was reset Debts were cancelled. Land was redistributed back to the starting point, And slavery was abolished. It was a capitalist's nightmare. And it was a socialist's impossible dream. And it was so radical, it was so challenging that the nation of Israel has never enacted it. Never, throughout its whole history. Could you imagine every 25 or 50 years, people saying, well, you may have worked hard for the last 25 years. 
You may have built up your business, you may have moved from this part of town to another part of town, but actually, this year, everything goes back to naught. Anybody who's been taken in slavery, they're free. Anybody who owes you any money, that's wiped off. Any money that you, anybody that you owe money to, that's gone. That's a relief. Credit card bills, gone. Puts the index going down, forget it. Never mind Friday, no hassle. Everything goes back to the starting place. It was so radical, so shocking, that Israel never, could never bring itself to do it. And yet Jesus here is saying, I'm declaring now that this is the year of the Lord's favour. This is year zero. Everything goes back to scratch. Everything goes back to how it should have been. This is God's reset button. This is the year of the Lord's favour. And finally, he claims, remarkably, that it all focuses on him. Three times, Jesus emphasises the word, me. He chooses this passage deliberately. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. You see, Jesus is making himself the focus. He is the means of people being set free. He is the means of forgiveness. He is the means of freedom. He is the means of justice. He is the means of slavery being abolished. He is the means of sight being given to the blind. He is the one who sets people free. He is the Messiah. And then finally, he is also declaring that this new day, this year of the Lord's favour has arrived when previous measures of status are now overturned. Where now, irrespective of family or birthplace, ethnicity or gender, religious purity or obedience, all are welcome in the new community of Jesus, in this thing called the kingdom of God. All are welcome. All previous gradations of who matters and who doesn't matter, status, wealth, birth, ethnicity, gender, all gone. Because now everybody is welcome in the kingdom of God. Now, when Libby was putting this sermon series together, I don't think that she realised that this Sunday would be the Sunday after the EU referendum. Not many of us could have predicted the result that came about, certainly if you live in Edinburgh, as compared with the rest of the UK. But I think this is a very poignant and apposite reading on this Sunday of all Sundays. Whether we woke up on Friday in despair or with delight, this passage reminds us that there is something bigger, that there is something more important, that there is something more significant that we belong to than either Scotland or Britain or even the EU. Whether we voted to leave or remain in the EU, whether we feel anxious or relieved this morning, whether we feel angry or regret the vote that we made on Thursday, this passage reminds us that there is something bigger, more important and more comprehensive. 
It reminds us firstly that our focus as a church, as individuals, should be on one person. And that's the person of Jesus. It shouldn't be on Boris. It shouldn't be on Nigel. It shouldn't be on Nicola. It shouldn't be on any politician. It should be on Jesus. Because he remains the answer to our society and our world's deepest problems. Whether it feels like it or not to us this morning, he is the one who is in charge. He is the one who can bring freedom, release, forgiveness, and he is the one who welcomes all. And if our priority is Jesus and his kingdom, then it will not be restricted to national boundaries. Whether those boundaries are Scottish, whether those boundaries are British, or whether those boundaries are European. There have been lots of words written and spoken since Thursday. Many of them on social media have not been very helpful. It's not helpful if you're going through grief to actually pour your heart out on Facebook or Twitter or any other social media platform. Others are available. May not be that helpful to do that. Because you're going through grief. Some people will be going through elation, other people will be going through anger, some people will be going through bargaining, other people will be going through disbelief. And playing it all out in front of other people may not be the most helpful thing. As I say, there have been lots of words written and spoken since Thursday. But I found these words deeply challenging and helpful. They're written by a British theologian who is Professor of Theological Ethics at an American university, Duke, and it was posted on an Australian website. In his article, Luke Bretherton just examines the rise of Donald Trump and he analyzes the Brexit vote this week in the UK. And it's quite a penetrating and I found really helpful article, but at one point he simply writes these words. The life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, rather than economic prosperity, political sovereignty or national greatness, are the condition and possibility of movement into new kinds of relationship with God and neighbour. Such an orientation rules out a nostalgic division that poses the past as good and the present as intrinsically bad, as well as making judgments about who is and who is not on the right side of history. See, the temptation on Thursday was for some people who voted one way to say that the past was better and the present is intrinsically bad. The temptation now is for a different group of people to say the past was better and the present is intrinsically bad because it's the present. As Libby reminded us at the start of the service, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. For God, there is no past, present and future. He is sovereign and over all and is in charge. 
So no matter how we feel this morning, irrespective of how we voted this week, irrespective of how we felt on Friday morning or how we feel today, the reality is that you and I belong to a different kingdom. We don't belong to a different kingdom. We do belong to a different kingdom. Whatever it may say on our passport, whichever queue we will have to be in in the future, in two years' time, EU or non-EU, at passport control, whether our passport is British, whether our passport is Scottish, whether our passport is American, whether our passport is Australian, whether our passport is French, Italian, German, Australian, those things are secondary because we belong to a different kingdom. We belong to a different kingdom. Our allegiance is not to Scotland first. It's not to Britain first. It's not to Europe first. Our allegiance and membership and belonging is in the kingdom of God. And what you and I are called to do is to proclaim, live out, declare and demonstrate the reality of that kingdom every day of our lives. Yes, we need to pray. Yes, we need to get involved. Yes, we need to engage in the political system. But we need to live the kingdom into reality. And we do that very simply, day after day after day, by telling people about Jesus and living lives that show that we belong to Jesus. That's what church is all about. It's why we do what we do on a Sunday. It's what the Alpha Course is all about. It's what soul food is all about. It's what our children's work and our student work is all about. It's what connect groups are all about. In order that people might come to know Jesus and grow in that relationship with Jesus. I was struck reading this week John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man? And in, in that book, Ortberg, in his opening chapter, invites the reader to consider society and culture as if Jesus had not existed. And it's quite a thought. Imagine a world without hospitals or orphanages, both begun by Christians, and both started because Christians brought about a new way of thinking about children and a new way about thinking of the ill and the poor. Imagine a world with no churches or cathedrals, no Notre Dame or Sacré-Cœur in Paris, no St Paul's Cathedral in London, no St Giles in Edinburgh, no St Peter's in Rome, no Red Cross, no Shaftesbury Society, no Mother Teresa, no William Wilberforce, no Martin Luther, no Martin Luther King, no Billy Graham, no John Wesley, no Charles Church Wesley, no William Booth, no Salvation Army, no YMCA, World Vision, Tear Fund or Compassion, no Oxford, Cambridge or St Andrews Universities, all begun by Christians, no Yale, Harvard or Princeton Universities in America, all begun by Christians, no Handel's Messiah, no Hallelujah Chorus, no Mozart's Requiem. That's what the world would be like without Jesus and his followers. And it's a culture, a society, a world that is unrecognisable. So however we may feel this morning, whether it's anxious or hopeful, whether it's relieved or regretful, whether it's fearful or faithful, we need to recognise this morning that we need to live in the light of the truths of that, that, those words that we sang. We are no longer slaves to fear, but we are children of God. 
and that we belong to a kingdom that is coming, but is not yet. But God asks that you and I live lives that show that we believe that that kingdom can one day be a reality and that one day it will be a reality. We belong to a different kingdom and our lives need to focus once more on Jesus. Libby's going to lead us in a time of prayer and response.